This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. With me today is developer and chief marketing officer of ThoughtBot, Dan Croak. Dan, it only took 128 episodes and two and a half years to get you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Chad. Happy to be here. <laughs> so uh, for a long while now, you've been not only a developer at ThoughtBot, but also our chief marketing officer. What does that role mean to you? Uh, yeah, I think I took on the chief marketing officer role about four years ago, and I look at it as a responsibility for attracting and retaining customers for ThoughtBot. So we're primarily a consulting business. Um, so for the vast majority of our business, it's making sure that potential clients know about us and they want to work with us and that clients that are happy with our work. Mm -hmm. So what does that in practical terms mean for some of the things you do on a day-to-day -day or weekly basis? Yeah, I think for ThoughtBot, you know, we've kind of found our rhythm over the years where in particular content marketing has worked really well for us. Everything from our blog, these podcasts, our open source work. Uh, book writing, you know, all kinds of things like that act as ways for people to find out about us. I think that, that started because we just do it naturally. You know, mm -hmm. they weren't primarily intended for the for the purpose necessarily of content right. marketing. It sort of started as you know we're developers and we want to share you know the things that we're learning back to the world on the blog, and we use so much open source software. We know the power and the quality of really good Ruby libraries and JavaScript libraries and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've contributed back Bourbon and Paperclip and all that kind of, kind of thing. And in practice, what we found that people learn about us, you know, when, when they fill out that project planning form and we ask them, how did you hear about us? They'll say things like the playbook or we, we've been using Factory Girl for three years or uh, all kinds of things like that. So when we started to sort of notice that that was happening i think we doubled and tripled down on, on those kinds of efforts so from my perspective i just try and amplify the things that are that are working it's pretty typical in most organizations that only a few customer acquisition channels work really well for a particular kind of business and i think for us word of mouth and content marketing are probably the two that, that work the best so current and, and past clients referring their friends, you know, it's pretty typical that, you know, a founder of a startup is going to know other founders and they're going to be talking about what's working and what isn't at their business. And they'll say, oh, I use ThoughtBot to get our MVP off the ground. Their designers and developers were excellent. I highly recommend them. And they'll refer all kinds of business to us. And so a way to amplify that would be at the end of the project, ask our clients for a testimonial uh, or notice that there's a Quora thread about Boston web design and development firms and go back to our previous clients and say, hey, there's this thread about us. Do you mind spending 10 minutes just talking about your experience with ThoughtBot on there? And it all starts with doing really good work for them. They, they wouldn't be interested in, in, in probably commenting right. on those threads if they're upset with us. It's all authentic, but you sort of amplify it by, by finding opportunities to um, tell that story. Yeah. So I always say, or I often say that we're very fortunate that the things we would do anyway have such a positive effect on our 
business. So like the open source and blogging, um, the podcast, like these are things we would do anyway. Like you couldn't stop us. So Mm -hmm. it's actually really good that they have such a positive impact. Otherwise we'd be wasting a lot of time. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, I know that you and Matt and John were also pretty influenced by 37 signals. Right. Uh, at the the time, Thoughtbot was really early stage. You know, same for me. I, I hired mm-hmm. Thoughtbot in 2006 as, as a client, and learned about Ruby on Rails f- sort of through 37 Signals and the way that they talk about their business. And one of the things that they've always harped on is sell your your byproducts or mm-hmm. at least you know promote your your byproducts. Mm-hmm. You don't always necessarily have to sell your ebook or you know at least notice that you have these byproducts that are valuable to people. And it's, it's usually really interesting for others to see, particularly when you're kind of a business-to-business business type of business. People always are really interested in how you're running things. That's a lot of the stuff that we're sharing, I think, on the podcast and the blog is the, the tactics uh, right. and the emotions. And yeah, the, the podcast does a really good, good job of sharing the emotional side of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They we often, might as well rename the, the podcast uh, Imposter Syndrome. It comes up so often. <laughs> you know, I think that, like, it's really the personal side that comes through with people's voices. And then the, the blog and you know, the, the books really tend to be very tactical. Yeah. And 37 Signals also has this thing where they say like the really professional, famous, well-known chefs have cookbooks. Right. Like they don't worry about publishing their recipes. That's not what makes them good or famous or successful that only increases their reputation right um and so we take that to heart i often get asked about how we publish the blog like the tactics of how we manage the stream of content and all that stuff because i think people generally think the blog is pretty good (laughs) and they say how do you main how do you do that like and i think one of the first things is we often just push ourselves to just write, just write anything. The thing that you just learned, you may think it's trivial or something that you learned two years ago, you you take for granted that other people know about it. So almost everything, there's someone out there who doesn't know about it. So that that's the start is like in terms of uh, what to write. You just write about anything, really. But once it gets to the writing, I think we talk about this in the playbook about the, the the technique we use for managing the flow of content. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I think it probably starts with the fact that we're booking our time four days a week for consulting and one day a week for investment time. So there's a natural time built into our routine mm-hmm. where one of the things that you can spend that time on is writing or, or editing a blog post. I think that's critical for a number of reasons, but one of them is that the best content kind of has to have come from recent experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just listening to an old podcast episode for Giant Robots with Adam Wiggins, and he and Ben were talking about uh, one of Adam's old posts where he discussed scaling a development team. And it's been a post that Adam has been, received a lot of comments about. People contact him and say this was really useful. And the post is really just about when you're a two-person team, it's really easy just to kind of hack your prototype together. But then as the team grows to a couple designers, product manager, you know, that, that kind of thing, how do you how do you manage that in a way to kind of match your organization to the technical infrastructure and vice versa? And it's a really interesting post. And I've, I've spoken with Adam about this as well. And he, he sort of said, 
when I, when I spoke to him about it, it was like two years after that post. He said, I never could have written it now. Looking back on that, I had to have written it in the moment. So I think the same thing applies to our work, where on a Friday, when you spent Tuesday and Wednesday really diving deep into a problem, whether it's something with Postgres, you know, full text search or something, or if you've been spending multiple weeks, multiple months, you know, and then it's still really fresh in your mind, having that moment to it's budgeted for that that time uh, is really useful. About a year and a half ago, we switched the blog over to Markdown, and um, it uses Middleman for a static site. But I think the, the really crucial portion of it is that it's plain text. So before that, we were using Tumblr, so kind of a WYSIWYG type interface. People would put their drafts into the web browser, and that was okay. But I think for our culture, most people are using a text editor of their choice, a lot of times Vim. Uh, for coding and the workflow that we've established over the last year and a half is very much plain text happens to be formatted in markdown kind of a lightweight markup language we're writing in our comfortable editor that we have so much muscle memory built up for from coding open up a pull request on github where you get reviewed from your team a lot of the blog posts that we put up there get 25 50 75 comments from other teammates uh, i'm pretty active on there and gabe's pretty active on there and you know a lot of people really dig in whether it's at a content level you know if it's about css animations you might see a number of the designers jumping in and reviewing but uh, a number of us are also really interested in copy editing and shortening sentences and not mm-hmm. repeating yourself in the posts and that kind of thing which tends to be really important for writing for the web not having walls of text breaking them into small paragraphs that kind of thing and the more that we kind of iterate on that style of, of writing the more we found all kinds of other little hacks like caleb i think introduced us to semantic line feeds which right. is some, this idea that's been around for a while where you kind of hard line break your phrases in a sentence so it almost looks like poetry in the text file you know it's kind of breaking at a, at a comma or you know concepts within a sentence and i've been doing that pretty regularly now for maybe three or four months and it's changed how i write and think and shorten my sentences a lot of writing is editing and that kind of breaking the phrases apart helps you identify when you are repeating yourself or when you have unnecessary things in there Uh, there's all kinds of little vim plugins and text editor plugins that can do spell checking but also can look for weasel words and say like, you know you don't need to use just here you don't need however you don't need uh, th- those kinds of things yeah we'll link to the semantic line feeds document in the show notes which you can get at giantrobots.fm slash 127 there's another benefit to semantic line feeds and that's because every concept in your sentence is on its own line when you're using git to edit the post it's likely that if you want to change a concept or, or change one of the concepts, you're only changing one line. And so the diffs come out much cleaner because you can sort of discuss and change each sort of piece of the sentence or, or concept on its own without disturbing the rest of the line. Yep. And it doesn't matter for Markdown because Markdown, normal Markdown for hard line breaks without two line breaks all goes together into one line. Yep when it's rendered as HTML. Exactly. And so that's an example, I think, of 
the kind of separation of concerns that we're really used to from design and development where you've kind of separated out the content that the text from its representation it's mm -hmm. how it's going to be parsed by markdown and then um, styled by our, you know, our, our css files on the blog and we've kind of separated out the writing portion in your, the comfort of your own editor the review function is used by github pull requests which we're all also really comfortable with mm -hmm. from other contexts well it's the exact same process that we use for everything that we do in our apps so we when you're going to make a new post you create a branch for it you have a new file there you're editing in that branch when it's ready for a review you make a pull request right when it's ready to publish you rebase squash and merge the branch into master yep so and same process. Deployed Heroku. <laughs> and deployed Heroku. <laughs> yeah, so right. uh, uh, and served by, by Fastly, which is you know, becoming another common way of, of serving content like that. And the whole process is managed by Trello, just like many of our other processes, whether it's a software project or hiring or sales or other things where, you know, to me, Trello is a, a process manager. You, know, you can keep finding different processes to, to hack together into a board uh, and really organize there. Yeah. And that editing process is really, I think, rigorous, surprisingly so. And it's, I think, because we have a lot more people at ThoughtBot, it's gotten even more so. And sometimes it goes really quickly. I think most of the time it goes really quickly. So we may be getting, you know, tons of comments on your blog post, but they're happening really quickly. And, and very often, you know, you submit that for review and it takes just a couple hours to, to finalize it. Yep. But sometimes that feedback is really valuable. I know that I have a post which was not super technical, it was more of a process one. And the questions that people were asking in that post made me realize like I can I can really expand on that post to cover sort of the science or research that's going into it behind it. And it's been sitting there for a while, but eventually I'll get back to that and that's okay. Like the the process, the branching the source control, it's all geared towards like an editing process, just like with software. Yep. And just like our software projects, you know, you start to see other opportunities to keep tweaking and improving the process too. Like right, right. now we don't have much of a continuous integration process for the blog, but we totally could have mm -hmm. spell checking and lightweight copy editing and looking for the weasel words and broken link checking right. you know, as part of the, I think we actually have a little bit of broken link checking as part of like a test suite that runs on each mm -hmm. of the, the posts, but we could go even further on all that stuff. And, you know, we, we have hound for style checking on our, right. <laughs> that our would code, be crazy, but yeah. like we totally could have, you know, a, a strunk and white style, style checker for hound like hound could be the the you know ci for their for right or english markdown files that'd be fun <laughs> when you use the word like just it comments on that line being like don't use that <laughs> so how many uh blog readers do we get like a month um per month i think right now it's about two hundred fifty thousand, mm -hmm. something like that so it's been growing you know i think it's gone, grown about 80% or something over the last year. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is the regularity of the editorial calendar that we have in, in Trello. And a large portion of it is just the naturalness of the workflow that we just described. Mm -hmm. Some of the other benefits, I think, of having it in a text-based, you know, middleman type site are that we've also been able to do some things like 
keen off of the tags and placing some kind of content at the end of a post that's relevant to the tag, whether it's, you know, essentially an ad for one of our products, form keep, you know, hound upcase, or if it's some kind of other read more, mm-hmm. you know, cross-linking to a different article or, or something. And you can do a really easy sed or, you know, grep to look for, through plain text files in, in your project and very quickly make retroactive, you know, footer type changes across the whole site that wasn't as easy in, you know, some of the other web-based platforms that we had used in the past. Right. Like it's just sort of, we keep relearning old lessons. I think it was the Pragmatic Programmer book where they talked about the power of plain text and that still continues to apply and we find new applications of that principle. Yeah. We used to pay a lot of attention to RSS subscribers. It seems like that's not the case much anymore. Yeah, it became pretty flattened when we watched the numbers over the years. And so at a certain point, I think we kind of even removed it from the UI because it just was not... Right, like a call to action to subscribe. Right. Right, yeah. It seems like a lot of blogs right now have an email subscription. I think we probably should give that a a try Mm -hmm. and experiment and see if if people want a, a daily email, if we have a post or a weekly digest. I've been thinking about like a weekly digest for all things ThoughtBot, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's the blog plus the podcast that, that week, plus any open source releases, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of those, we could kind of have a, a master RSS feed that ag- aggregates those different places. Mm-hmm. You know, there should be, I think there's an RSS feed for GitHub releases on the open source projects. And I think that'd be pretty interesting to get on Friday mornings or something mm-hmm. and see what the latest things across the whole company, even if it's just for us, that right. I'd be interested yeah. in that. You know, I subscribe to Ruby Weekly and, you know, all the programming language JavaScript weeklies and going weeklies and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. um, that seems about the pace that I think I would want personally. Yeah, that's a good idea. We should do that. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's only so much time, though. Yeah. Speaking of time, over the last maybe six months, you've been sort of working on a new project, and that's the growth team at ThoughtBot. Mm-hmm. How did that get? St- well, first of all, what what is growth? Maybe I'll maybe I'll start with kind of how I got there in terms of really wanting to to do this at, at ThoughtBot, and then yeah, I can talk more specifically about, about growth. So, and you know, I've been at ThoughtBot since two thousand seven. Worked with I think over fifty different startups and of all those projects you know very regularly the visual design interaction design code testing you know all of that is extremely high quality and we've basically never failed to release something to market uh, usually a very simplified easy to use type product but the variety of how those products do in the market has varied much more than kind of those details of product design and software engineering right and our clients also have a variety of existing skills or team makeup for how they're going to promote the product or how they're going to grow it. And so watching that over the years, I think I got interested in just wondering the, the, the reasons for, for that. And I think by nature of seeing all those projects, you, you kind of naturally expand the scope of how you hope you hope to be impactful to the, right. the success of the, the project. Well, because it's it's also frustrating from a developer or designer perspective where you've worked really hard on something and you think it's really great, mm-hmm. and then it goes out to the world and it isn't as successful as you wanted. Right. It, it becomes frustrating. It also potentially impacts how what our clients think of us. Right. 
Yeah, and I think my first foray into kind of expanding my scope of what I was kind of interested in where I thought I could be effective on the projects were was actually sales. So for really the first three years I was at ThoughtBot, I wasn't really doing sales, you know, maybe mm-hmm. a project here or there. But with hindsight of seeing what happens to the projects after they're live, I became much more interested in the moment someone contacts us and says, I might be interested in this project, you can start to see a little bit further ahead about what the results of those projects might be and mm-hmm. different questions to ask and what are some particular signs of success or you know, how can we make sure that we're being hired by the right person in the organization and that kind of thing. Right. And you know, I think that was the first first step of kind of understanding and getting the heads of the founders and how they think about their business and or if it's a nonprofit, you know, how they think about their nonprofit. But over time, still felt like there was more to learn and been particularly interested in this idea of growth. So the the term growth over the last probably three years has become, I think, more well defined. So you're seeing more and more software companies, uh, tech companies have growth teams. And what a growth team typically is, is a interdisciplinary blend of design, engineering, and marketing. So traditional marketing usually is kind of focused on the awareness and acquisition phases of the company. So whether it's advertising, kind of brand marketing, sponsoring things, generally kind of falls into the marketing department. And the product team is kind of more focused historically on just making sure that the the product works and looks great and is hitting the the needs of of its users. And what I think the the key insights and, and the kind of forces that have led people to having these growth teams are that agile development style of, of iteration. You know, the, these teams are moving so fast from a product perspective that things are, are changing all the time. You need that quick feedback loop from product and marketing and that a lot of the understanding of where you're at in the phase of your business is kind of buried deep in analytics and in the customer support and things that tend to be further down the funnel from, you know, the the kind of top of funnel activities that a a marketer Mm -hmm. would focus on. And so once you start saying, Hey, the, we need to instrument event analytics and the nature of a software product is that you can understand at a very detailed level, the, the kinds of interactions your customers are taking and start to break it into different pieces uh, I think the the growth team sort of naturally needs to have that that blend of marketing, design, engineering mm-hmm. experience. Also, as we've gotten started working with people who are focused on growth on our own products, you know, I, I'm pretty good at keeping at project management and keeping a lot in my head. But there's just too much to do if you, if you're trying to build a product, trying to make sure that certain things get built and fielding and giving comments on pull request at the same time as reviewing all of the analytics and deciding what to do next. Like that's a lot to do. And it is helpful to have someone whose role it is sort of doing some of that work for you and then bringing the results or deciding what the next experiment might be to run and making sure that it goes well. What we found was that if there wasn't someone who was doing it, Back on Upcase when we were when we didn't have a growth team, we'd set up these experiments and we'd go off and we'd say, okay, we need we need to let this run for 15 days or 30 days. And we'd come back and we'd say, it was set up incorrectly mm-hmm. <laughs> and we got no good data. 
and right. we, you know the events weren't instrumented properly or whatever and it's just because we weren't paying attention to it it wasn't wasn't something that we could do along with everything else we were doing so it's actually been a lot better i think to have people who even if they're only on it one day a week yep. whose role it is who's paying attention to that yeah i think it's a similar lesson we learned with the advisor role mm-hmm. at thoughtbot where for a lot of our projects say it's a one designer one developer project there might also be a, an advisor who sits in on the weekly planning meeting and kind of acts like Socrates or something and asks you know a few right. questions and just says, what have we accomplished this week? What are we doing next? And that objectivity and just sort of playing a lightweight project manager type type role um, from like ask the questions, like not necessarily mm-hmm. drive priorities, but like making sure that people are, it's much, much easier to influence in some ways in those meetings from an objective perspective. And I think the growth team is very similar that, yeah, you can totally get tunnel vision and really get focused on your current database indexing problem or something for your developer or really fine-tuning an interface if you're a designer and you start to forget about, hey, the, the clock's ticking, especially from consulting engagement, the clock's ticking on the, this person, our client's budget, and re- they really need to find out this information by the end of this two-month period uh, that people really do want this, that they're, they're using it, that the interactions that we've set up are the kinds of interactions that they need. And despite, you know, setting up usability tests every other week, you know, we, we might not necessarily be orienting ourselves correctly. So the growth team, I think, is it's really meant for, for a startup type business. You know, I think that's probably worth saying, first of all, too, that you don't necessarily need to focus as much on growth if you're uh, a small business, if you're running just a cafe or a restaurant, you know, you, you might not care about opening lots of restaurants and, you know, world domination in the cafe Mm -hmm. business or something what you really just might be focused on is having a a full cafe every day and serving really good coffee and and that kind of thing growth is intended to be for high growth type businesses or early stage businesses that are intended to be larger businesses and well yeah that's interesting that you say that because i think that let's be honest some people have a negative connotation of of what growth teams might be doing and I would actually use the example of the coffee shop to sort of counter that. Like what you do on the growth team, like if you were a coffee shop and you wanted to make sure your customers were happy, you'd use some of the same techniques that a growth team would use. If you have only 15 customers in the morning and you'd like to figure out how to make that 30, you'd use some of the same techniques. You'd just be watching people come into the store or watching people glance at the store as they walk by and trying to figure out why they're not coming into the store yeah. instead um, and say, well, what if we change this? Would someone come, would do more people come into the store? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think really the the primary differences with, you know, web app or a mobile app type product are that the scale is just, right. g- the, the ceiling can be so much higher that mm-hmm. once you've filled your restaurant from nine to five, Monday through Friday, like if that's your goal, like you just need to figure out how you maintain that right and right you've kind of hit your your goals and but i, t- I totally agree that the techniques are generally the same and so for the past three months or, or so uh, galen is one of our designers and myself again with the developer background have kind of formed this growth team and worked with three of our thoughtbot clients as well as kind of working on thoughtbot's own products and I'd say our, our primary goals over the first three months were making sure that we have a process down. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of my thinking on growth has been particularly influenced by Brian Balfour, 
uh, who's got a lot of great writing on growth. Uh, I think his blog is coelevate.com. And he talks about the process is your input and the tactics are your output. So a lot of times when someone who's running you know, a tech business finds someone who's really good at marketing, their first question are like, oh, you know, should I, should I run some Twitter ads? I've heard Google ads don't work very well. You know, should I do this? Should I do that? And they're talking in very specific tactics. And before you can get there, you have to do some earlier work. And I think looking back on the past three months in 2014 for ThoughtBot's growth team, I think we've kind of at least established what our process can be for now. And of course, it'll evolve over time. But for us, kind of our first step is defining the job to be done for the the product, you know, so, and possibly a step earlier than that, the mission of the company. So I'd look at, you know, ThoughtBot as an example and say, uh, a primary reason we exist, if not, you know, our our main mission is to create better software. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you have a different way to say it. You're the the CEO. I would say create great products, but, you know, or bring people's ideas Mm -hmm. to life. Yeah. And so there's a lot of jobs to be done to accomplish that goal. Right. Um, but I, th- I think when you start with the, the mission of the company, that frees you up to say, we could solve this lots of different ways and is the way that we're doing it the best way right now? And you got to keep looking for opportunities to improve upon that mission. And right now, we're primarily achieving that by having great designers and developers, uh, web and mobile, focus on consulting work. And that maybe that's always going to be the, the core. Mm-hmm. Um, but we may want to supplement that over the years with other things and as we've done our work we've found other jobs that we need to do that we've fulfilled by writing open source software or by writing products like airbrake uh, to track exceptions or hound because we feel like a job that we need to do to create really good software is to keep the style of the code base consistent mm-hmm. and so to accomplish that we decided in that case that we'll create a tool called hound to check style on pull requests and comments in line to tell the, the person who opened the, the pull request that, hey, this quote, you know, should be a different way or should indent this a different way and that kind of thing. And Hound could accomplish that job to be done in lots of different ways, but right now that's how it, how it does it. And so we kind of start with that and say, what moment for this product are people who need this job to be done getting authentic value from it? And right now, that moment is when Hound reviews their code and provides them that, hey, your, your style is good, or their comments in with a style violation. And what do you mean? You use the term authentic value. What do you mean by that? It's partially a response to other ways of, <laughs> of counting or, or you know, setting up your metrics on mm-hmm. a product where a lot of people focus on daily active users, monthly active users, which I think is one of the most important metrics, but it all depends on how you define active and some people just define active as like logins or user sessions if that session doesn't tie to in hound's case them getting review of of their code then it doesn't really matter and hound's an interesting case where it's not actually anything user interface related you know they basically set up a webhook through through github and so they're kind of just going on their, their normal day and they're opening the pull requests and hound is there helping them out Right. So it's kind of a passive thing that they're, they're helping them out, that, that the product is helping the user out for. And so the moments where they're getting value is happening during those those builds. And I think it's all authentic is also intended to mean don't let the, the vanity metrics steer you wrong. Like mm-hmm. if, if you have a metric that is important and is driving decisions, if it's 
not the authentic, you know, reason that, that the people are using the, the product, then I think everyone's very likely to, to go off path, but also morale is going to come down because people are going to see through that. Right. So. right. so for example, if you were just focusing on daily active users or monthly active users, you might start to do things like finding ways to bring people back to the site, regardless of the value that that was right. actually delivering. Right. You might be sending them all kinds of push notifications or emails or you know right. all kinds of things just to have them sign in. And if they're bouncing after 10 seconds, maybe that's right for your metric, but wrong for mm-hmm. keeping people around long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been calling that the, the North Star metric. And mm-hmm. so you know, I, don't, I don't think we invented it. We've heard people like Josh Ellman, who ran the growth teams at Twitter and LinkedIn, and Alex Schultz, who um, was on the growth team at Facebook. And it's a really interesting concept to say, this is the one metric we're going to keep looking at, and it's going to help us make decisions. It's going to be the kind of root node of the decision tree that gets us asking questions. And so what we've generally been doing on our projects is say, you know, again, for Hound, if um, what, what the important metric that is is builds what we've been saying teams with builds per week is the metric is our north star metric that we Mm -hmm. really care about and what we found so far in our projects is that you can usually calculate that by looking at your own sql database you know or if it's manga or what you know whatever your 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 primary database is a lot of times that activity is already there Uh, i I suspect that there's gonna be cases where we're going to need to look in the event tracking systems to find the the information we need but so far we've been able to, to find that in our SQL database. So we've just been setting up a data clip, which is a Heroku Postgres feature. So you can just put a SQL query. We've kind of been using Postgres's uh, window functions, and there's a lag function that you can kind of compare week to week. So you can kind of truncate your data into a weekly set and then uh, export that out to a Google spreadsheet, which we then chart. And we've been kind of the, the first question that we always see when we look at that week by week information is okay, you know, it went up. Five percent, and your immediate question is why. And for us, the next question is always like, did that growth come from existing users, or do we have an influx of new people who are really had those builds per week? And what we found so far for Hound, which we've been happy to see, is that it's mostly retained users. It's mostly people who had a build the week before, have a build again the next week. And I think you would kind of suspect that for a CI service, as long as it's working well and doesn't have false positives and things like that. But that starts to help us go down the decision tree and say, okay, if, if retention's good, then where else can we focus our time? Right. Um, do we have more of a problem in terms of bringing new people to the homepage or do we have a bigger problem between homepage and sign up, or sign up and setting up their GitHub repo uh, or configuration uh, so that you know, they're a Ruby project, but they're turning it on, but turning it off because it's not configured the way that they want. And so that process, again, the kind of thinking of it like a decision tree, just starts sending you down into different places and you start looking into Mixpanel to understand the numbers of activation, you know, the different steps between sign-up and authentication. And, and you can see where people are primarily dropping off. Exactly. So, so week to week, and then you, you always have a baseline. Uh, once you have that, that information set up, you can say it went up or down, what, what changes do we make that affected that? And at a certain point, you're like, okay, the, the weakest part of our funnel is here. Do we know why? Uh, sometimes, especially early on, the answer is we don't know, but we should be instrumenting a new analytic. Like that should be the first thing so that when we ask this question again next week, 
we have better inf data to go on. And then a lot of the times the next step is to go talk to someone, to talk to a user who's fallen out of a funnel or you know, use intercom and those kinds of things to segment different people who have who've had or not had different events and ask them questions. Or if the problem is more acquisition, so if it's before you ever have an email address, then you need to start going out and finding people and being more creative about like, okay, what's a similar product to us? Who are the users of that? And do we know that this particular user of, of, of a different product is not using Hound? Let's go ask them why they use that one instead of Hound. Asking your users who are using a competitive product might be more insightful than your current users, but they might, they might, they might be happy when they look at their data and say, they've been around for three months, they're, they're not going anywhere. And while they, we want to treat them well, it might be more important in the long run to bring on a new set of people. It might be more important to bring on Java users to Hound so that we have more revenue so that we can go back and improve the experience for everyone because there's always that aspect of how are we going to staff this thing. <laughs> right. the, the, the biggest cost in all these projects is always people. Um, and so hitting some of those revenue levels often means you got to go out and find people who aren't using the products and figure out from them what's the missing communication or feature or do they not have the job to be done that we think um, are we not doing a good job convincing people that right. style is an important thing? Those kind of questions. Or they may even say, I didn't even know this existed, right? And then you know, oh, we need to do more market, traditional marketing. Exactly. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? I don't know. I mean, I'm curious to hear from you about how you think about the growth of ThoughtBot over the years. You know, the, the growth of products is, is one thing, but what do you look back on for the last, you know, five years or so and say, how did ThoughtBot go from... 20 people to almost 100 and what were the things that, that were, I always think this is an interesting question what are the what were the obstacles that limited our growth and how did we remove them mm -hmm. that's another task we found to be really important on on the growth team is you know especially starting from a product design sprint you know we go through these exercises and one of the things that we, we do during the product design sprint is list assumptions that we're making about the product mm -hmm. and you end up with this assumptions table and say you know we assume that People are using GitHub for their Ruby projects. We assume that they are using pull requests on their team to get review from their, their team. We assume that they're interested in keeping their project in a consistent style. You list these assumptions, and you can just flip, flip them around and say, these are our risks. And mm -hmm. how do we, one by one, eliminate this risk the best that we can? Because those are the things that are going to throttle growth. And so whether it's eliminating a step in the process or changing your, your marketing page to one by one address those mm -hmm. particular obstacles or you know right now we think we, there might be a, a set of people who think hounds permissions and github are stopping them from really using the product that they right. hit that authentication screen they're like what you know i don't want to give you right access to this this thing and so that's an obstacle that's stopping us from growing people are dropping out at that point of the funnel because of this reason and so there might be a technical solution to that that we can remove the obstacle for. Mm -hmm. But as someone who's running a fairly large consulting business, you know, what, what do you think the obstacles were over the years that we started to chip away at? It's interesting because I think the biggest obstacles to growth were actually internal obstacles. You know, we very purposely stayed under 20 people for a long, long time and thought that that's what we would always be because we didn't know that we could be the kind of company we wanted to be like really have just great people without project managers without salespeople, 
and be any bigger. Uh, I, you know, the group dynamics of a larger company, I think breed mediocrity. And the answer to the question, like, why are we doing this this way can never, in my mind can never be, well, that's the way we've always done it. Or I don't really know, but someone made that decision. Whatever. Like that's right. completely unacceptable to me. And I think to everyone here. So I, that was the biggest obstacle to growth. I, very fortunately, we have been pretty successful ever since we switched to Rails and became more intentional about the, our work. We approach, started to approach our work focused on happiness, our own happiness and happiness of customers and, and like we had nothing to lose because we didn't really have anything to lose early on. So once we eliminated that, it was sort of not, the, the growth came. And the, the trick, or not trick, but the way we eliminated that was realizing that if we had something really good, we were sort of doing ourselves a disservice not trying to bring it to more people. If we had a place that people really loved to work and people loved to work with, the other was the biggest reason why people always left. It killed me was when someone would sit down with me and they'd say, ThoughtBot's the best place I've ever worked. I don't want to leave, but I need to move to San Francisco or whatever. (laughs) So those kinds of things, the pressure was growing, I think, internally to think about, like, why why are we doing this way? And the answer was, well, that's the way we had always done. Like, that's what we thought was right. And so it it was questioning those assumptions around why the decisions we were making and figuring out a way around that. And we realized that um, instead of thinking about it, like how can ThoughtBot ever be a 50-person company without having salespeople or whatever, like we didn't need to worry about that. We knew that our business was largely geographic, being in Boston, most of our clients were in Boston, and that we knew exactly what a four-person or a six-person or a 10 or 20-person ThoughtBot looked like. We had done it for 10 years, and it's great. So instead of getting hung up on how can we possibly be any bigger, don't think about it like that at all. And I very rarely think about the group as a whole of like this hierarchical 90-person structure. That's not the way that we are set up. And it was figuring out how to question those assumptions and change how we were working that allowed us. But it was mostly internal, mostly psychological. Um, And now that we're through that and we have offices in eight cities and you know we still have internal obstacles to growth in terms of you know organizational headroom not having business people those kinds of things you know our internal north star metric i think is happiness like does this make us happy and we make assumptions about what won't make us happy so we assume that having salespeople would make us unhappy because we assume that salespeople generally don't know what they're selling like the technical aspects of what they're selling and overpromise things that can't be delivered. That assumption is not we've never had a salesperson. <laughs> so we don't know that that's actually true. So those are internal trying to f- find external ones, you know, when now that we're across eight cities, I see it in the clients who come to us or the clients who don't come to us. A lot of clients assume that they can't afford or shouldn't work with a firm that has eight cities across the world that when you come to our website and go to the contact us page, we have a map of the world on it with eight different dots on it. And 
I think people, some people say that and say, that's not the kind of company for me. And they don't realize that that dot in Austin is a designer and three developers who are really great, who are the same core of ThoughtBot that has always existed when we were four people. Do you have a sense of why those customers make that assumption that because it's a large company, they can't afford us? Do they think it's more overhead that they're paying for that they don't want to pay for or something like that? I think that, yes. I also think that people make assumptions about what big consulting companies do and are. And it is one of the things that I was even very scared of when we were starting ThoughtBot or in, in the early days. I really, really tried not to use the word consulting at all. I, I just said we're, we're development and design because I was worried that people have this fear around what consultants typically do, which is just make recommendations and not actually build anything. And so I think that people have a good sense of what we do now, but there is that, I think, feeling when you come to the website and you look at eight offices across the world that you could be like, oh, this is, you know, this is not for me. I want to just want a freelancer (laughs) to work with. So nowhere in there did I hear a growth hack. There wasn't like one thing that that helped us go from 20 people to Darn it. <laughs> to to 100 100 people. But I think that's I think that's probably the impression people have about growth hacking. You know, when they hear that term, it sounds like a get rich quick type yeah. mentality. Well, people yeah. say how did how did you grow? and I say, "Well, we spent 10 years building a place that people want to work at. That's how we grew the team." Like and it's just, yeah, I think having some of those core processes in place and letting the processes scale and be the right size for the number of people and the complex, you know, the, mm-hmm. the offices and those kinds of things, as well as fighting back on processes that are too heavyweight. Your big speech this summer, you know, the, the right. our summer summit, you know, we were laughing about afterwards and it's like, we're rallying around back office system, you know, refactoring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's the necessary process chipping away tactics that, that lead to growth and, and looking at those obstacles and saying, all right, we have this obstacle of people looking at us and saying, you're, you're too expensive before they even get to us. What are some ways we can address that? And then we'll go through our normal processes of design thinking and customer interviews and customer research. And that may result in doing things like, setting up landing pages where people can get an ebook about growing to be a hundred person company without hierarchy by using, you know, we're using Markdown and and things Mm -hmm. like that for our cookbooks. You know, we have our office managers who are editing those files and it's, uh, you know, things like our security systems and, you know, how to operate, how to use the printer and all that kind of stuff is, you know, we've edited down our processes to be a smaller set of, of things you can do. So we have these smaller interfaces. Like I think that's for me, thinking like an engineer, applying it to a growth process. Like you have to have a good interface in any of those disciplines is narrow and well defined. Like mm-hmm. it, you know, you only have a few entry points to how you how you work. And having a north star metric just helps simplify so many things. And having a distributed team with fewer roles, and you can pull the information you need out of those those repos as needed, helps simplify everything. And helps us grow. I think that's a good place to wrap it up, Dan. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Dan, how can people get in touch with you or follow you if they're interested? You can email me at dan at thoughtbot.com. I'm Croaky on Twitter, Croaky on GitHub. Cool. Show notes for this episode can be found at giantrobots.fm slash 128. This episode was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks, Tom. And thank you for listening. (laughs) 